Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today, we are finishing Women, Race, and Class by Angela Y. Davis. We've got the second half of the final chapter, which shouldn't be too long, and then some thoughts on this chapter and the book as a whole. I've been discussing it as we go and mostly agreeing with the book, so I'll just do a little bit of wrap-up then. So with that, let's get started on our final reading from this book. The shortage, if not absence, of public discussion about the feasibility of transforming housework into a social possibility bears witness to the blinding powers of bourgeois ideology. It is not even the case that women's domestic role has received no attention at all. On the contrary, the contemporary women's movement has represented housework as an essential ingredient in women's oppression. There is even a movement in a number of capitalist countries whose main concern is the plight of the housewife. Having reached the conclusion that housework is degrading and oppressive primarily because it is unpaid labor, this movement has raised the demand for wages. A weekly government paycheck, its activists argue, is the key to improving the housewife's status and the social position of women in general. The Wages for Housework movement originated in Italy, where its first public demonstration took place in March 1974, addressing the crowd assembled in the city of Mestre. In the city of Mestre, one of the speakers proclaimed, quote, Half the world's population is unpaid. This is the biggest class contradiction of all, and this is our struggle for wages for housework. It is the strategic demand. At this moment, it is the most revolutionary demand for the whole working class. If we win, the class wins. If we lose, the class loses. End quote. Footnote 14. According to this movement's strategy, wages contain the key to the emancipation of housewives, and the demand itself is represented as the central focus of the campaign for women's liberation in general. Moreover, the housewife's struggle for wages is projected as the pivotal issue of the entire working class movement. The theoretical origins of the Wages for Housework movement can be found in an essay by Maria Rosa della Costa entitled Women and the Subversion of the Community. Footnote 15. In this paper, Della Costa argues for a redefinition of housework based on her thesis that the private character of household services is actually an illusion. The housewife, she insists, only appears to be ministering to the private needs of her husband and children, for the real beneficiaries of her services are her husband's present employer and the future employers of her children. Quote, the woman has been isolated in the home, forced to carry out work that is considered unskilled, the work of giving birth to, raising, disciplining, and servicing the worker for production. Her role in the cycle of production remained invisible because only the product of her labor, the laborer, was visible. End quote. Footnote 16. The demand that housewives be paid is based on the assumption that they produce a commodity as important and as valuable as the commodities their husbands produce on the job. Adopting Della Costa's logic, the Wages for Housework movement defines housewives as creators of the labor power sold by their family members as commodities on the capitalist market. Della Costa was not the first theorist to propose such an analysis of women's oppression. Both Mary Inman's In Woman's Defense, 1940, 
footnote 17, and Margaret Benson's The Political Economy of Women's Liberation, 1969, footnote 18. Define housework in such a way as to establish women as a special class of workers exploited by capitalism called housewives. That women's procreative, childrearing, and housekeeping roles make it possible for their family members to work, to exchange their labour power for wages, can hardly be denied. But does it automatically follow that women in general, regardless of their class and race, can be fundamentally defined by their domestic functions? Does it automatically follow that the housewife is actually a secret worker inside the capitalist production process? If the Industrial Revolution resulted in the structural separation of the home economy from the public economy, then housework cannot be defined as an integral component of capitalist production. It is rather related to production as a precondition. The employer is not concerned in the least about the way labour power is produced and sustained. He is only concerned about its availability and its ability to generate profit. In other words, the capitalist production process presupposes the existence of a body of exploitable workers. Quote, the replenishment of workers' labour power is not a part of the process of social production, but a prerequisite to it. It occurs outside of the labour process. Its function is the maintenance of human existence, which is the ultimate purpose of production in all societies. End quote. Footnote 19. In South African society, where racism has led economic exploitation to its most brutal limits, the capitalist economy betrays its structural separation from domestic life in a characteristically violent fashion. The social architects of apartheid have simply determined that black labour yields higher profits when domestic life is all but entirely discarded. Black men are viewed as labour units whose productive potential renders them valuable to the capitalist class, but their wives and children, quote, are superfluous appendages, non-productive, the women being nothing more than adjuncts to the procreative capacity of the black male labour unit. End quote. Footnote 20. In accordance with South African law, black women are banned from the white areas, 87% of the country, even, in most cases, from the cities where their husbands live and work. Black domestic life in South Africa's industrial centres is viewed by apartheid supporters as superfluous and unprofitable, but it is also seen as a threat. Quote, Government officials recognise the homemaking role of the women and fear their presence in the cities will lead to the establishment of a stable black population. End quote. Footnote 21. The consolidation of African families in the industrialised cities is perceived as a menace because domestic life might become a base for a heightened level of resistance to apartheid. This is undoubtedly the reason why large numbers of women holding residence permits for white areas are assigned to live in sex-segregated hostels. Married as well as single women end up living in these projects. In such hostels, family life is rigorously prohibited. Husbands and wives are unable to visit one another, and neither mother nor father can receive visits from their children. Footnote 22. This intense assault on black women in South Africa has already taken its toll, for only 28.2% are currently opting for marriage. Footnote 23. For reasons of economic expediency and political security, apartheid is eroding, with the apparent goal of destroying, 
the very fabric of black domestic life. South African capitalism thus blatantly demonstrates the extent to which the capitalist economy is utterly dependent on domestic labor. The deliberate dissolution of family life in South Africa could not have been undertaken by the government if it were truly the case that the services performed by women in the home are an essential constituent of wage labor under capitalism. That domestic life can be dispensed with by the South African version of capitalism is a consequence of the separation of the private home economy and the public production process, which characterizes capitalist society in general. It seems futile to argue that on the basis of capitalism's internal logic, women ought to be paid wages for housework. Assuming that the theory underlying the demand for wages is hopelessly flawed, might it not be nonetheless politically desirable to insist that housewives be paid? Couldn't one invoke a moral imperative for women's right to be paid for the hours they devote to housework? The idea of a paycheck for housewives would probably sound quite attractive to many women. But the attraction would probably be short-lived, for how many of those women would actually be willing to reconcile themselves to deadening, never-ending household tasks, all for the sake of a wage? Would a wage alter the fact, as Lenin said, that, quote, Petty housework crushes, strangles, stultifies, and degrades the woman, chains her to the kitchen and to the nursery, and wastes her labor on barbarously unproductive, petty, nerve-wracking, stultifying, and crushing drudgery. End quote. Footnote 24. It would seem that government paychecks for housewives would further legitimize this domestic slavery. Is it not an implicit critique of the wages for housework movement that women on welfare have rarely demanded compensation for keeping house? Not wages for housework, but rather a guaranteed annual income for all, is the slogan articulating the immediate alternative they have most frequently proposed to the dehumanizing welfare system. What they want in the long run, however, is jobs and affordable public childcare. The guaranteed annual income functions, therefore, as unemployment insurance pending the creation of more jobs with adequate wages, along with the subsidized system of childcare. The experiences of yet another group of women reveal the problematic nature of the wages for housework strategy. Cleaning women, domestic workers, maids, these are the women who know better than anyone else what it means to receive wages for housework. Their tragic predicament is brilliantly captured in the film by Usman Semben, entitled Le Noir de... Footnote 25. The main character is a young Senegalese woman who, after a search for work, becomes a governess for a French family living in Dakar. When the family returns to France, she enthusiastically accompanies them. Once in France, however, she discovers she is responsible not only for the children, but for cooking, cleaning, washing, and all the other household chores. It is not long before her initial enthusiasm gives way to depression. A depression so profound that she refuses the pay offered her by her employers. Wages cannot compensate for her slave-like situation. Lacking the means to return to Senegal, she is so overwhelmed by her despair that she chooses suicide over an indefinite destiny of cooking, sweeping, dusting, scrubbing. In the United States, women of color, and especially black women, have been receiving wages for housework for untold decades. In 1910, when over half of all black females were working outside their homes, 
one-third of them were employed as paid domestic workers. By 1920, over one-half were domestic servants. And in 1930, the proportion had risen to three out of five. Footnote 26. One of the consequences of the enormous female employment shifts during World War II was a much welcomed decline in the number of black domestic workers. Yet in 1960, one-third of all black women holding jobs were still confined to their traditional occupations. Footnote 27. It was not until clerical jobs became more accessible to black women that the proportion of black women domestics headed in a definitely downward direction. Today, the figure hovers around 13%. Footnote 28. The enervating domestic obligations of women in general provide flagrant evidence of the power of sexism. Because of the added intrusion of racism, vast numbers of black women have had to do their own housekeeping and other women's home chores as well. And frequently, the demands of the job in a white woman's home have forced the domestic worker to neglect her own home, and even her own children. As paid housekeepers, they have been called upon to be surrogate wives and mothers in millions of white homes. During their more than 50 years of organizing efforts, domestic workers have tried to redefine their work by rejecting the role of the surrogate housewife. The housewife chores are unending and undefined. Household workers have demanded in the first place a clear delineation of the jobs they are expected to perform. The name itself of one of the houseworkers major unions today, Household Technicians of America, emphasizes their refusal to function as surrogate housewives whose job is just housework. As long as household workers stand in the shadow of the housewife, they will continue to receive wages which are more closely related to a housewife's allowance than to a worker's paycheck. According to the National Committee on Household Employment, the average full-time household technician earned only $2,732 in 1976, two-thirds of them earning under $2,000. Footnote 29. Although household workers had been extended the protection of the minimum wage law several years previously, in 1976 an astounding 40% still received grossly substandard wages. The Wages for Housework movement assumes that if women were paid for being housewives, they would accordingly enjoy a higher social status. Quite a different story is told by the age-old struggles of the paid household worker whose condition is more miserable than any other group of workers under capitalism. Over 50% of all US women work for a living today, and they constitute 41% of the country's labor force. Yet countless numbers of women are currently unable to find decent jobs. Like racism, sexism is one of the great justifications for high female unemployment rates. Many women are just housewives, because in reality they are unemployed workers. Cannot, therefore, the just-housewife role be most effectively challenged by demanding jobs for women on a level of equality with men and by pressing for the social services, childcare for example, and job benefits, maternity leaves, etc., which will allow more women to work outside the home? The Wages for Housework movement discourages women from seeking outside jobs, arguing that slavery to an assembly line is not liberation from slavery to the kitchen sink. Footnote 30. The campaign's spokeswomen insist, nonetheless, that they don't advocate the continued imprisonment of women within the isolated environment of their homes. They claim that while they refuse to work on the capitalist market per se, 
they do not wish to assign to women the permanent responsibility for housework. As a U.S. representative of this movement says, quote, We are not interested in making our work more efficient or more productive for capital. We are interested in reducing our work and ultimately refusing it altogether. But as long as we work in the home for nothing, no one really cares how long or how hard we work. For capital only introduces advanced technology to cut the costs of production after wage gains by the working class. Only if we make our work cost, i.e. only if we make it uneconomical, will capital discover the technology to reduce it. At present, we often have to go out for a second shift of work to afford the dishwasher that should cut down our housework. Footnote 31. Once women have achieved the right to be paid for their work, they can raise demands for higher wages, thus compelling the capitalists to undertake the industrialization of housework. Is this a concrete strategy for women's liberation, or is it an unrealizable dream? How are women supposed to conduct the initial struggle for wages? Dalacosta advocates the housewives' strike. Quote, we must reject the home, because we want to unite with other women, to struggle against all situations which presume that women will stay at home. To abandon the home is already a form of struggle, since the social services we provide there would then cease to be carried out in those conditions. End quote. Footnote 32. But if women are to leave the home, where are they to go? How will they unite with other women? Will they really leave their homes motivated by no other desire than to protest their housework? Is it not much more realistic to call upon women to leave home in search of outside jobs, or at least to participate in a massive campaign for decent jobs for women? Granted, work under the conditions of capitalism is brutalizing work. Granted, it is uncreative and alienating. Yet with all this, the fact remains that on the job, women can unite with their sisters, and indeed with their brothers, in an order to challenge the capitalists at the point of production. As workers, as militant activists in the labor movement, women can generate the real power to fight the mainstay and beneficiary of sexism, which is the monopoly capitalist system. If the wages for housework strategy does little in the way of providing a long-range solution to the problem of women's oppression, neither does it substantively address the profound discontent of contemporary housewives. Recent sociological studies have revealed that housewives today are more frustrated by their lives than ever before. When Anne Oakley conducted interviews for her book, The Sociology of Housework, footnote 33, she discovered that even the housewives who initially seemed unbothered by their housework eventually expressed a very deep dissatisfaction. These comments came from a woman who held an outside factory job. Do you like housework? I don't mind it. I suppose I don't mind housework because I'm not at it all day. I go to work, and I'm only on housework half a day. If I did it all day, I wouldn't like it. Woman's work is never done. She's on the go all the time. Even before you go to bed, you've still got something to do. Emptying ashtrays, wash a few cups up. You're still working. It's the same thing every day. You can't sort of say you're not going to do it because you've got to do it. Like preparing a meal. It's got to be done because if you don't do it, the children wouldn't eat. I suppose you get used to it. You just do it automatically. I'm happier at work than I am at home. What would you say are the worst things about being a housewife? I suppose you get days when you feel you get up and you've got to do the same old things. You get bored. You're stuck in the same routine. I think if you ask any housewife, if they're honest, they'll turn around and say they feel like a drudge half the time. 
Everybody thinks when they get up in the morning, Oh no, I've got the same old things to do today. Till I go to bed tonight. It's doing the same things. Boredom. End quote. Footnote 34. Would wages diminish this boredom? This woman would certainly say no. A full-time housewife told Oakley about the compulsive nature of housework. Quote, The worst thing is, I suppose, that you've got to do the work because you are at home. Even though I've got the option of not doing it, I don't really feel I could not do it, because I feel I ought to do it. End quote. Footnote 35. In all likelihood, receiving wages for doing this work would aggravate this woman's obsession. Oakley reached the conclusion that housework, particularly when it is a full-time job, so thoroughly invades the female personality that the housewife becomes indistinguishable from her job. Quote, the housewife, in an important sense, is her job. Separation between subjective and objective elements in the situation is therefore intrinsically more difficult. End quote. Footnote 36. The psychological consequence is frequently a tragically stunted personality, haunted by feelings of inferiority. Psychological liberation can hardly be achieved simply by paying the housewife a wage. Other sociological studies have confirmed the acute disillusionment suffered by contemporary housewives. When Myra Ferry, footnote 37, interviewed over a hundred women in a working community near Boston, quote, almost twice as many housewives as employed wives said they were dissatisfied with their lives, end quote. Needless to say, most of the working women did not have inherently fulfilling jobs. They were waitresses factory workers, typists, supermarket and department store clerks, etc. Yet their ability to leave the isolation of their homes, getting out and seeing other people, was as important to them as their earnings. Would housewives who felt they were going crazy staying at home welcome the idea of being paid for driving themselves crazy? One woman complained that staying at home all day is like being in jail. Would wages tear down the walls of her jail? The only realistic escape path from this jail is the search for work outside the home. Each one of the more than 50% of all US women who work today is a powerful argument for the alleviation of the burden of housework. As a matter of fact, enterprising capitalists have already begun to exploit women's new historical need to emancipate themselves from their roles as housewives. Endless profit-making fast food chains like McDonald's and Kentucky Fried Chicken bear witness to the fact that more women at work means fewer daily meals prepared at home. However unsavory and unnutritious the food, however exploitative of their workers, these fast food operations call attention to the approaching obsolescence of the housewife. What is needed, of course, are new social institutions to assume a good portion of the housewife's old duties. This is the challenge emanating from the swelling ranks of women in the working class. The demand for universal and subsidized childcare is a direct consequence of the rising number of working mothers. And as more women organize around the demand for more jobs, for jobs on the basis of full equality with men, serious questions will increasingly be raised about the future viability of women's housewife duties. It may well be true that slavery to an assembly line is not in itself liberation from the kitchen sink but the assembly line is doubtlessly the most powerful incentive for women to press for the elimination of their age-old domestic slavery. 
the abolition of housework as the private responsibility of individual women is clearly a strategic goal of women's liberation. But the socialization of housework, including meal preparation and childcare, presupposes an end to the profit motives grain over the economy. The only significant steps toward ending domestic slavery have in fact been taken in the existing socialist countries. Working women, therefore, have a special and vital interest in the struggle for socialism. Moreover, under capitalism, campaigns for jobs on an equal basis with men, combined with movements for institutions, such as subsidized public childcare, contain an explosive revolutionary potential. This strategy calls into question the validity of monopoly capitalism and must ultimately point in the direction of socialism. And that concludes both this chapter and this book. Overall, I found this a very good and very useful book. Uh, It quite explicitly did the thing I was hoping for at the start, where by overlapping different vectors of oppression and actually tackling them together, it kind of filled in some things that I felt were lacking from other stuff we'd been reading. Partly because it was older. I mean, some of that stuff is just not able to predict the way society would develop decades after, but also in part because they were they were focused on very much a flattening of identity of everyone being the same and we're all in this together in entirely equal measure. I presume this last chapter was not written in response to the conquest of bread and uh, their discussion of domestic labor, but it sure does feel like it answered my questions on that. And of course, to talk about this chapter in particular, all of the stuff this book is alluding to, it is still behind the times of where we went, because we're now in a world where there is a massively expanding service industry that's basically founded on a lot of this kind of domestic labor, housework, this style of labor. Because in the modern day, what we have is not only do we have these as professional services being done by people for too little money and doing too much work, we have furthered the ways in which this work is both invisible and demeaned and dehumanized because by virtue of a lot of service work being done now through apps and through like technology, we create a false sense of the idea that it is being automated or that it is being efficiently mechanized to make people feel like it's not that they're getting this work done on the backs of a lot of individuals who have to go out and do tons and tons of work, like their hands have to be on every step of this process, but because as the customer sees things, they are just touching a thing on an app, they don't value the labor, they don't understand the labor, they're so distanced from it that they're far less aware of what's happening, the conditions of how bad it is, how poorly paid these people are, how precarious their work is, because they're not even employees anymore. They are now contractors, which is like being an employee, but with less rights. And as this chapter has suggested, none of this is going into optimizing the work to make it less burdensome on the individual. This work is being optimized for profit, not for improvement. You will find that, for instance, Uber will optimize their app so that they get the most money possible, but they are simultaneously 
just using people as much as is necessary. They're unconcerned with the amount of labor people are doing, they're unconcerned with how much burnout people have, how many excessive amounts of hours people need to work. The fact that people are only paid while taking rides, at the end of the day, it is simply not enough to assume that progress will be positive or that new developments and new technology are going to actually help the people as much as they are going to optimize for the system they are in. And so if we're in capitalism, they're going to want profit. They're not going to want to improve conditions inherently. On that optimistic note, uh, that's us done with this book. At the time of recording, I don't know what's coming next, so you'll have to see once that pops. So look forward to finding that out next week. If you have questions, comments, suggestions for new readings, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or get the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find it and lots of other leftist podcasts about video games, books, anime, movies. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening and keep reading.